All right. He, he just had you sit down. We haven't read the text yet. So if you have your Bible, we're going to pick it up in Luke 13. Give you a second to flip and turn. Once you get there. All right. Go ahead and stand up. Good job, Ken. Ken was first. I want you to know. All right. Go ahead and stand up with me. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 13, and we're going to be starting in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. You may be seated. This is not a bubbly text. Just be prepared. All right, so we're picking up the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and we're picking it up. Um, as, and as we already kind of know from previous weeks of study, so if you're, if you're new, we've been going through the entire book of Luke and we go by, we go through it super fast. No, it's been a long time. Uh, we'll go slowly through the book and we just try to mine and get every good thing that we can out of it. So that's kind of the style that we, that we do here. Um, but it showed that Jesus was going through towns and villages heading toward Jerusalem. Now, I just want to kind of point out really quickly that this is not just a destination. This isn't just a place. Uh, and I know earlier uh, I was warned that I travel around the stage a good bit. If you're on the live stream, I'm sorry. If I disappear, I'll come back. It'll happen. Thank you so much for doing what you do. <laughs> but as he is journeying towards Jerusalem, uh, that's not just a destination. That's an actual theme. So from the last half of chapter 9 in Luke all the way to chapter 19, which is over a third of the book, it's kind of categorized by Luke, as Jesus heading to Jerusalem. So it's completely possible he's walking away from Jerusalem directionally, but he's still heading to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place where hope died, suffered, and was raised to life. That's where it all happened. The cross is very much present. Jesus knows full well what's going to happen to him as he teaches the things that he's teaching. And Luke makes sure that we know that none of it is a surprise, none of it is a shock, it is absolutely known, understood, felt, and very much informing his traveling. All right. So when we read verse 22, he said he went through towns and villages uh, teaching, uh, going towards Jerusalem. The thing that first popped up, and this almost has nothing to do with the sermon. I just think it's really cool because if you do Bible study, good stuff happens. It said towns and villages, and I wanted to know what towns and villages. And there's like almost no way to really know by looking at this text unless you study your Bible. So this is cool. If you go to the very next verses after 30, it says that some Pharisees ran up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you better get out of town because Herod, Herod wants to kill you. Right? It's there. You can read it. Now, there's 
what does that do for us? That really doesn't do anything for us unless you go back and read Luke chapter 3, verse 1. So let's go there if you haven't been there yet. Did we do this on the screen? I don't know. We'll see. All right. It says, In the 15th year, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. So the Pharisees come to Jesus, say, hey, Herod wants to kill you. Which Herod? It's not Herod the Great, who's over a large swath of land. It's his son, who's a tetrarch, and he's over Galilee. So we actually find out it's, he's probably in or around Capernaum or one of the towns that surrounds the sea. How cool is that? Has no weight or value for today, but pretty cool though, right? Anyway. All right, so Jesus is going about, he's healing people, he's teaching them, and he's telling them what the kingdom of God is like and what they must do to be saved. As he's going throughout this mission and carrying on his ministry, a man walks up to him and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now this, and we know it's an important question because of the way that Jesus actually answers him. There's a fear to this question. Now, I take a little bit of license here when we interpret the text, uh, and it almost seems like he's doing one of those things where he goes, hey, Jesus, are you saying what I think you're saying? To which then Jesus responds, well, those who are saved be few. Now, I think one of the important things that, is, that we need to kind of establish here is we don't really know what this guy meant when he said saved. All throughout the New Testament, people got it wrong. The kingdom, they misunderstood it. Salvation, they didn't get it right. That's missed. We have no idea how he meant when he said, what he meant when he said, will those who are saved be few? But we know what Jesus meant when he said saved. And that is the far more important part. Jesus launches straight into a parable, which is always really fun. If somebody ever asks you a question and they're like, well, let me tell you a story. Good times. So let's read together, starting at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. That is the end of the parable. That's where it stops, okay? Something else that needs to be mentioned is that in all likelihood, this man is Jewish. We kind of know that from the rest of the way that this conversation goes uh, and the location of where he's at, which is around the Sea of Galilee, which we figured out from Bible study. Good job. Well done, everybody. Jesus starts his parable with one, uh, with a singular kind of invitation, and it is to strive. Uh, some of you probably have a different version, and it might not say strive. Most translations do. It might say make every effort, or try really hard, or some version of that. The word that is actually originally there is the word agonizomai, which is literally the word for agony. It's the root for it. It's a violent, violent word. And this is the invitation that Jesus gives. Agonizomai. That is how he invites people to enter through the narrow door. Now, this is not the first time we've heard a parable like this. Uh, if you've 
If you're really quick with the Bible stuff and you were like a champion at Awana, you could go really quickly to Matthew chapter 7. If you want to be lazy, I think we have it on the screen. Now you've heard a similar story, all right? Let's go to that one. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. This is verse 13 of 7, sorry. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I want to pause just really quickly and ask, are we okay with the Jesus who teaches this? We okay with the Jesus who is this harsh, who talks about people being destroyed and weeping and gnashing their teeth and suffering? Because that's the Jesus we have in the Bible. What Jesus was saying to his audience of more than likely Jewish people was revolutionary, but it wasn't in a way that they would be flattered by his new teaching. In his story, back in Luke, the master gets up and he shuts the door and he will not let certain people in. The people who heard this would have been scandalized. If the guy who asked the question was like, wait a minute, are you saying what I think you're saying? And his answer was this. They would have all, they would have been very likely, they would have been scandalized. They would have absolutely hated his answer. Jesus said to them that there is a day coming that the door will be shut and you won't be let in. And talking to the Jews of his time, they're going, he says that they're going to make an argument. And the argument they're going to make is that it's not right, it's not fair that you would exclude me, because didn't I eat at your table? Didn't I hear you teaching in our streets? That's their argument. All right, now real quick, show of hands, how many of you on your father's side can get your grandfather's first and last name? How many of you know it? Go ahead, raise it up. Yeah, nice and I most all of us, yeah. Great-grandfather, first and last name. Mm, a lot less. Just one more time. Great, great grandfather, first and last name. We get about two generations and we are forgotten completely. Like, we just nothing. We have no scope beyond, like, like, if you're really lucky, you get four generations, maybe. And then we are forgotten. The people that Jesus is talking to, they can trace their lineage by the tens and tens all the way back to the tribes. They, were, they knew, like, in bloodline, how to get to Father Abraham. His father Abraham had many sons, many sons. I'm not doing the song. <laughs> but they had that hope. They were born of the right people in the right place at the right time. They had nothing to worry about. And Jesus looks at him and says, yeah, you do. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 29, starting in verse 13. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught. When Jesus finished the parable, he then interprets the parable for us, which I think is just the best way to do a parable. Don't, make, don't let me decide what it means. So it ends at 27. He says, depart from me, you workers of evil. And no longer is at 28, when we pick that up, he is no longer describing a hypothetical story. You need to know that. That's where the parable ends. And then he starts to talk about real events and real people and real things that are going to happen in the events and course of human history. 28. 
Luke 13, picking it back up at 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, some who are first who will be last. So they had an assumption about their status before God. They thought they were fine. And what's worse about it is they used the Bible to do it. They used their upbringing to do it. They used their light and fringe association with the things of God to justify the fact that they really didn't love God most. They said, but didn't we come to temple? Didn't we hear the stories of David slaying Goliath? Didn't we hear about the blood being put on the doorpost? Didn't we eat the Passover meal, the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs? Didn't we go to temple and experience all these things? Jesus says, yeah, you may have, but that is not enough to save you. He tells them you're going to watch as all the people that you claim to be associated with, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, Solomon, all of the prophets, they're going to be walking into the kingdom and you yourself, you're going to be cast out. Not only that, I'm going to be bringing people from places you don't even know about. I'm going to bring them into the kingdom in a way that would absolutely confound you. What? That's incredible. Let's read Isaiah 29:14. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish, and the intelligent, intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Jesus took these Jewish people who didn't really know him and didn't really know the Father, and he tried to show them how much danger they were in. I'm really glad that Jesus did this, and that it's to a first century Jewish hearer. And it has almost no value for us today. You guys have a great Sunday. <laughs> obviously not. No, this passage is obviously for us today just as much as it was for them. And in it, there's an enormous amount of hope as well. Right? It's, it's a, we don't have lineages, right? We don't have the hope of the blood that's in us uh, being a part of the blessing of Abraham. Right? We can't even get past great-great-grandpa. No idea who he was. I would say also, if we're going to be able to church really well, we also need to learn how to family really well. Maybe our culture's influenced us in ways that we didn't even anticipate. But that's a different sermon for a different time. Our hope is not in lineages. And some of you may come from Jewish backgrounds, but our hope is not in the blood that goes through your veins. It's in the heart of God. Because he said that the good only... It's, going to go to the north and the south, but it's also going to go to the east and the west, and it's going to do some things that are absolutely marvelous. Think about it. Right now, you and I sit right here in this room because of the plan and the heart of God being made real. It's happening. This book is not just a book that is just, oh, we picked it up. It's a nice book. No, there is somebody who taught something who talked to somebody, who talked to somebody about the goodness of God, and we sit here as a result of it. You may not know the lineage of your birth family, but 
You also may not know the lineage of the people where the gospel has come. But it happened. It happened. That is the hope that we get to see. We don't sit at the wailing wall in Jerusalem praying for the temple to be rebuilt anew. We are the temple. You and I are the vessels of God with the Holy Spirit inside of us carrying forth the mission. We are now a part of the story, and we get to see it right here, north, south, east, west. If you've come to this church for any amount of time, you know that we, most of the money that goes in, we send it out to missionaries, a thing that tries to make the gospel known. Every one of us in this room is called to a mission, to the mission. And when I talk about us spreading the gospel, I think that we often hear that as an individual. Church? I'm moving, sorry. I think it's very possible that we're so American and we're so individualistic that when Jesus talks about the thing that saves the world, that we only read it as individuals. And then... In evangelism, we put all of the weight on our shoulders when maybe, just maybe, what Christ has called us to is to become a family that loves each other so much that the world sees it and is transformed by it. Maybe you've been carrying a weight that you shouldn't have been. That doesn't mean you don't share the gospel with everything you have everywhere, but maybe you're also supposed to be a part of a family that bears the burden together. I've mentioned this one verse every time that I've gotten to get on the stage, and it's John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And if you love one another as I have loved you, the world will know that you're my disciples. We're called to be a part of something that's living and breathing, that goes and loves and holds each other and goes out into the world and loves them. And, and, and tomorrow is my six-month anniversary of being here, all right, and it's like really great to be here, but it really it's only like Mike. Oh, stop! <laughs> Love being here, but really it's only been four because I broke my leg and was useless for two. So, <laughs> two months from now we can do that and it'll be appropriate. But one of the things that has cr- probably grieved—not one of the thing that has grieved me the most as as a pastor—is the reticence that we have to actually talk with one another. I've seen far too many people trashing one another behind their backs. That can't happen. Not here. If we're going to carry out the call of God, that must stop. Your brother and sister, they deserve better. There's a movie that was shot in my hometown of Natchitoches, Louisiana, called Steel Magnolias. If you're under 25, I have zero expectation for you to know that movie at all. Uh, But everybody in my hometown knows and lives by one of the lines from it, and it's, if you don't have something nice to say, come sit by me. That's good, yeah. Dolly Parton? I don't remember which character it was. That has to stop if we're going to carry out the call of God, because we're called to be a family, and families should not do that to one another. We should not devour one another with our words. Now, although we don't see that call directly in these verses, you can absolutely see the plan of God as he talks about, hey, Jewish people of your time, draw close to the Father 
Because there's coming a time where this is going to go much further than just this little place. We can see and feel the heart of God in these words. So let me ask a question. Is this passage scary or hopeful? Yes. Every single word that Luke wrote is filled with hope. Luke 9 to 19, he talks about Jesus heading to Jerusalem. Why would he keep talking about that? Because in the very beginning of the book, on chapter 1, verse 1 through like 4, he says, hey, Theophilus, uh, I know that you've heard some of these things. I've heard some of these things. I took great effort to compile all of this so that you and I may be certain of the things that happened and the hope that we have in us. Every line of what Luke wrote was birthed and founded in hope. That doesn't take away the fact that this passage is also scary. So that, I think, begs the question, who should be afraid? We live in the South. We live in the Bible Belt, in fact. Christianity is kind of assumed here. In fact, it'd be rude not to assume that that person is a believer. Hey, man, I saw your cousin the other day. Is he a Christian? Oh, yeah, I think so. Really? Because he was stripping copper off of a work site. Oh, yeah, yeah, he'll tithe 10% of that. <laughs> Probably not okay. <laughs> that may have hit too close to home. I'm sorry if that... <laughs> so, and Pastor Mike had mentioned the other day uh, about being at a funeral where someone said uh, to the parishioners and congregations there that, oh, he had Jesus as his Savior, but not his Lord. I've actually been to a funeral where that exact thing was said, and I remember thinking, did anybody else catch that? We have a culture that assumes Christianity. Do you know what we and those Jewish people that Jesus was talking to have in common? They had a culture where they assumed they were okay. We've got people all around us that we leave it to some confession they made as a child or some baptism that doesn't seem to actually affect their life, and we just leave them to sit in that. Why do we do that? Why do we leave them to those weak confessions and things that don't seem to influence them? Well, if it's true of of you like it is of me, it's because I'm a coward. I care what they think. I don't want to get into an argument. I don't want to get into a fight. I don't want them to get all huffy and say, oh, are you accusing me of not being a Christian? Well, why are you sitting on your high horse? You're a sinner. And they're right. We don't want that smoke. <laughs> but here we see Jesus hitting awkward square in the face. And maybe, just maybe, we should lovingly and courageously engage with those around us. So I got a chance to finish up last week uh, our new members class, and I see some of you in here. Hey, how's it going? We made it. Uh, if you don't know, we do a three-week class uh, for, mem- for people that want to become a member because we need to test to find out if you have endurance and perseverance. So you have to come to a class. Uh, no, it's to make sure that you are a believer. And one of the things that I tell to the class because I don't want them to feel insulted is that I care about your membership. And I do. And if you're not a member here but you've been attending a long time, there are some things that you just... Covenanting is a big thing. Uh, but I tell them and I try to make it very clear. I care about your membership but I care about your salvation way more. I'm not going to assume that you're a Christian. And that might just be the most loving thing that I can do for you. You and I, 
We've got friends, we've got family, we've got neighbors, we've got fellow church people that attend right beside us, and we know that they don't love Jesus the most. We know that their Christianity might be nominal or surface level at best. Now, we are not the judge nor the jury. We are not the executioner. We are not, okay? This is not an invitation for us to when we step out into the call of God to go beat people over the head. But we do have the real call and the task of sharing the gospel, and that means sharing it where it is actually needed. What a tension. To be not judgmental, to be compassionate, to be loving, to be bold, and to be confrontational. What a tension to live in. I think the only way that you can actually do it is if you're in the Holy Spirit. Because that's the exact way that Jesus lived. Oh, that's hard. Real quick, I'm going to take a poll. Uh, first, uh, first round that we did this, it was overwhelmingly uh, that you had experienced this. How many of you have a friend, neighbor, somebody that you personally know who you've talked to them or you've at least heard their position and they have in some way said, as they don't go to church, you don't got to go to church to be a Christian. Yeah, overwhelming majority. Now, biblically and theologically, they're right. They are dead on. Thief on the, thief on the cross. Didn't, 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 he didn't even get baptized. <laughs> All bets were off for that one. So he got, like, your friend, they got you. Loophole. Maybe they're hiding behind some fringe, weird, silly stuff that they learned so that they don't actually have to submit their lives to Christ. Because if you want to be obedient to Jesus, he calls us to family together. You don't have to be Christian. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Yeah, theologically, you're right. But you do have to submit to your Lord and Savior. They don't have you. It's not a loophole. They didn't win. They're just rejecting the, the command and call of God to meet together, to break bread with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to serve, to give. We let them be silly, though. Again, because I think it's because we're cowards. Often. So again, I want to ask the question, who should be afraid? It's for those that don't know the narrow door. The narrow door is Jesus himself. The only way that we know we belong to him is from another seemingly paradoxical passage. It's where it says, if you want to save your life, you'll lose it. We belong and we're submitted to Jesus. If we're, his, if we're God's children, we're submitted to Jesus. That means our whole life will look like Jesus. People who profess the name of Christ, but there is nothing in them, around them, or about them that says that they love and belong to him, they're the ones who should be afraid. These passages in Luke, they're hard. And they reach from over 2,000 years to confront our nominal Christianity or our desire to just oh, I got baptized, so I'm good. Our desire to just nail it down and not actually have to strive and fight with every fiber of our being. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm not a hellfire and brimstone guy. I know that this passage, it may, it may feel like that. I'm not, and neither is Jesus. Because the hellfire and brimstone folks, they want you to feel like dirty worms and that you're worthless. That's not who Jesus is. 
But Jesus also isn't telling us that everything's puppy dogs and rainbows. He's telling us who the Father is and what the kingdom is like. What attention. The gospel warns us of a very real danger. And it gives us a much greater Savior. A Savior who loves us. A Savior whose yoke is easy and burden is life when we give our life to Him. A Savior who leaves the 99 to go get the one. A Savior who isn't unfamiliar with our sins, with our struggles. In fact, He stepped into human flesh, took on the cross, the grave, and then burst forth in victory to deliver us safely back to the Father. That's the Savior we have. Strive. Fight with every fiber of your being to enter in Jesus. Because that's the invitation. Oftentimes I think we do want a Jesus who's a lot softer and easier than the one that we have in the text. We don't. We have the Jesus who is. And he's better than anything you could imagine. Anything that you and I could make up, he is better. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of the narrow door. One day, the door will be shut. Right now, it is open. Strive with everything you have to enter through it. Every fiber of your being. Because one day, there will be nothing left but weeping and gnashing. So, uh, if I can, I'm going to invite Nick to come up and I'm going to take a little bit of time here. It's going to be a, a, a little bit longer of uh, end section. So those of you who don't know Jesus, he is better than anything. And I want to invite you that we're going to pray and then we're going to open up the altar. And if you want to, if you feel God calling you to give your life to him, I encourage you to do it with every fiber of your being, to give all of yourself to him. For those of you who already know Jesus, you're already walking with him, but maybe you feel like he's just not where, he is, where your priorities, he's not where they're supposed to be. Like, for instance, I think that oftentimes when I'm talking to people uh, and we talk about the things of God or the things of church or the, just the service, uh, and we all talk about how busy we are, can I be 100% honest with you that I think that when we start talking about, oh, I'm just so busy, it has, now it's not directly from this text, but it has the same essence to it because it's a commonly understood thing that we're all busy and that's a justifiable reason for me to not do the things that I'm supposed to be doing. Don't let you being busy be the reason you didn't live for God. Everyone's busy. Change your priorities. Downsize if you have to. Go without. Also, maybe we start banding together and sharing one another's burdens and you don't feel that weight on your shoulders as isolated as you have. Maybe you're hanging on to some sins. Maybe you've got some stuff that you're still gripped by and you can't shake free. You need to confess. We're going to open the altar up. We're going to do that together. Maybe there's a bitterness between you and one of your brothers or sisters. Maybe even in this very room. 
talk to them in grace and love because it's the very thing that's going to save a lot of people when we start to do what God told us to do. Either God's a liar or something powerful is going to happen when we die to ourselves and outdo one another in honor and share one another's burdens. Maybe you're called to some ministry here. Just kept putting it off. Don't wait anymore. Let's do this the way it was supposed to be done. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his love for us. And I thank you for the challenging words that he says because he doesn't let us hide and he doesn't let us run. And he wants us to give ourselves completely to you because that's the best thing that we could ever have is a relationship where we are fully and completely submitted to you. Forgive us for where we haven't done this the way that we should. Break us. Make us new creatures who love you. And for everyone in this room that we, are, that we struggle with our faith, that we struggle with our doubts, we struggle with our sins, let us pray just like others in the New Testament have prayed, which is, I believe, help my unbelief. And know that you are enough. Help us to go forward in your grace and to live in that faith and that joy. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.